and welcome back to Is This Seat Taken, the podcast celebrating people who have many places to call home. We discuss what home means to different people and how that impacts culture, identity and finding our community wherever we are in the world. This episode is with Ella Barrington, an award-winning business and operations director who carved her career in the ambitious world of motorsport. We talk about her time working for racing teams, travelling all over the world and what ultimately led her to starting her own business back in Oxfordshire. Enjoy this episode. Thank you so much for agreeing to be on the podcast. It's absolutely gorgeous to have you here. Um, I, I'm so glad that you mentioned it on that call the other day as well because I was like, of course. And I, uh, motorsport's been a fairly large part of my life as well. My dad is obsessed with cars and my godfather used to race and like, so it's it's so funny that I've never really spoken to you in detail about your motorsport history before because I spent a lot of my childhood at Brands Hatch and Silverstone and stuff. So it makes sense that we should have had this chat earlier, really. And we probably crossed paths as little girls in dungarees and then it turns out now we're big girls in dungarees yeah (laughs) yeah so true yeah I love that idea that we were probably standing in the same queue for the same ice cream cones at Silverstone in the summer yeah with the same obsessive dads yeah that's it that's it um so tell me a bit about it tell me about how you got into motorsport and and what it was like and so, as we've just said, obsessive dad, I think, is way, where the way I got into it. So my dad was a very successful, enthusiastic, amateur uh, racing driver. So he decided he didn't want to do it professionally. He had a, I think he had a test with a team when he was kind of in his late teens. And they said, oh, you're really very good at this. And he went, yeah, but... I've got a job, I'm going to uni, I've got a job lined up at the end of it, like, nah, I'd rather, and he's always maintained he'd rather do something that he is passionate about, rather than making it into a job and then struggling through it and resenting it. Ironically, now at like 55, he quit his job to do motorsport full time. Um, And maybe regrets it, I don't know, it's difficult to tell sometimes. Um, But that's just dads of a certain age, I think. But yeah, so I grew up with with kind of being picked up from primary school on a Friday night and being bundled in a car and then waking up at a another race circuit. And it was when I was about seven, I've got a really clear memory of going home after school and saying to my mum, um, Harriet doesn't know where Silverstone is. And she was my bestest friend as you have when you're that kind of age. And my mum sort of said, well, that her dad's a farmer he doesn't go racing at the weekend and it was like that light bulb moment of going not everybody does this (laughs) um and then going but but what do they do then and my mum having to explain that they would go and visit their grandma or they'd go swimming or they'd play with their friend and me thinking well that's weird how does that take two days of every seven (laughs) that's really strange um but actually it was quite a nice kind of peripatetic way to live because a lot of the people that my dad was racing with they all took it really seriously but they all brought their families it was quite different it's something that the sport has evolved away from particularly in the last 10 years that maybe I think is a little bit sad um Mm. is that actually everybody took their kids and so actually 
you kind of almost had a little tribe of children kind of stalking around these fields and and you had friends from all different sorts of paces in the country and and Mm -hmm. you kind of only met each other on a Saturday and Sunday and you were only there because your dad's liked cars but actually that was probably quite nice um so I did that um weirdly for those not obsessed with motorsport you can get your race license when you're eight in the UK no way there's a thing called bambino cart so you can get a bambino cart when you're three or four you can't officially race it because that's dangerous um (laughs) but they will be able to test and drive and learn to drive so then you can actually race when you're eight so I got to just before my eighth birthday and in my head I did the well I'm going to be just like my dad because that's what Mm. you do when you're little um (laughs) your influences are usually fairly close to home or it's an astronaut or a ballerina um Mm -hmm. so I thought I wanted to be a racing driver now I would identify it as very female imposter syndrome um but I just got really nervous about it and thought I I don't want to do it because I'm not going to be very good and I've got a really unusual surname and then that will embarrass my dad and then I'll embarrass myself and I don't think I really want to do it um and I remember saying I, I I don't actually think I want to so um got horse riding lessons instead equally dangerous uh, and really nothing more was said of it um but what I was definitely more suited to my hand-eye coordination is rubbish it took me three attempts to pass my driving test um but what I was good at was kind of maths and kind of physics and things at school I was always a bit of a dork um so then the seed was planted that maybe the way to be involved in motorsport but not hurt yourself and others would be to go in as an engineer um and that kind of ticks a lot of the boxes for me because on the surface of it 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 looks very clinical and mathematical but actually it's really creative it's problem solving so I did mechanical engineering for my undergraduate I did racing engine design for my postgraduate um and then went off into the wide world of professional motorsport. So impressive and how funny that a kind of imposter syndrome kicked in that meant that you didn't want to do racing so what you ended up doing was going into STEM you know essentially and like going for what would be a quite a masculine route anyway Um, but clearly it was what clicked for you even when you were that young. Yeah it it maybe sent maybe on some very subconscious level I knew that that by staying in my kind of safety zone of what I knew I could maybe be more successful in maybe that was enough to kind of counteract that imposter syndrome I didn't think I particularly thought about the gender split in engineering until I was much much older it was only kind of when I probably did my a levels mm-hmm. and I think that was the time where I all of a sudden went oh okay this is a thing and I didn't mm-hmm. confront it then for oh a good 10 years and now it's <laughs> a big part of every waking day it's thinking about it's thinking about that and how it's affected me um but it's been a really mm-hmm. interesting career I don't work full-time in my sport anymore that's not to say I won't again I think there's kind of an itch that maybe everybody who's worked in it at some point wants to scratch again um mm. but I do think it was a great choice I, when I was about 15 I think I did 
put on a form that I want to be a makeup artist or a pop star or something. Wow. <laughs> but, you know, teenage girls, you've got to get your priorities right. Um, but I'm, I'm still pretty pleased that I made that choice to go into it. Yeah. And, and when you, so you obviously did your postgrad and that was very niche. So I would assume that going from that, there's, there's job security there. Did you go straight into a team or how did that work? So I, um, I was quite a cunning teenager. <laughs> so I moved, so I grew up um, on the coast. Um, and then when I was 11, as a family, we moved to Oxfordshire. And I went from the tiniest little cute, very, um, very well-to-do primary school um, to this enormous state secondary school. And the time I joined, it was the largest secondary school in Europe. Um, So much so that the only time the whole school got together was once in my whole school existence. And that was when the outgoing head teacher got an OBE for turning the school around so all of a sudden I was stuck in this very different environment it took me a while to get get used to it but I kind of decided quite early on that I was going to game the system a little bit by being in a fairly rough school and so they did a thing called um it was called business mentors um and it was very much aimed at naughty kids and trying to find them an inspirational role model from the community that they could bond with. Um, so it was year nine, so it would have been like 14, 15. And I knew there was a big motorsport company around here and I knew that they would send somebody because they were investors in people and all the rest of it. So I did the form and the head of the year pulled me in and said, Ella, you got to level with you, you're a smart girl. This is for the naughty boys. Like, why have you done this? And I said, I really, really want to go and work at that company when I'm an old, older. So I thought they'd send somebody. And she looked at me like, fair play. <laughs> uh, and she said, Yeah, you're right. They are sending somebody. And this isn't really for you. But because you've shown this kind of cunning, off you go. Um, and I ended up getting assigned this. Uh, rally team secretary who was uh, a wonderful woman she was expecting a naughty boy she got me with a clipboard and I think (laughs) after about two weeks was like she's got so many questions that she just used to take me back to their premises and like leave me in a workshop corner and then my mum would collect me at the end and postgraduate being told it's not enough engineers in the UK you know I went to Leeds for my postgrad uh, sorry my undergrad so it's pretty reputable it's Russell Group walk into any job you're mm. gonna probably get a company car off the bat don't worry um and the reality is the week i graduated the whole world's economy went down uh, and oh. i think in oxford in north oxfordshire around where i live four and a half thousand people were made redundant from motorsport in the space of a month so all of a sudden i had and i quite arrogantly turned down a job offer in kind of march of that year um because it was in lincolnshire and i thought the pay was a bit rubbish so i was like Ah. and i turned it down because i thought i could do better and then i graduated yeah four and a half thousand people with experience and qualifications got made redundant so i spent that first i finished in september um and yeah i spent the first christmas working in hmv um just crying my heart out because i'd worked so hard 
but actually it was all right because I was still motorsport is very freelance based um there's a lot of what we call weekend warriors um <laughs> so because I'd been doing all these projects and placements and things like I could kind of keep in touch through odd bits of weekend work um and then I got a job working um teaching double glazing salesmen to sell solar panels worst job ever oh, well wow, I say worst job. terrible <laughs> I say worst job ever, but actually in hindsight, it taught me loads about small business and how it worked. So it wasn't a complete loss for six months, but I did that for, for a little while. Um, and I had some personal stuff that went on that actually meant I needed to be near Oxford. So it kind of worked, but then it was like lightning struck twice. So within the space of one week, the following March, I got a call from a race team that had just started up to say, we've heard through the grapevine you know about this really niche piece of software um do you want to come and work for us and this was like monday and they wanted me to start on friday and then the next day um a friend of a friend phoned up and said um you know this manufacturer and it's again super niche swiss company but everybody in the industry uses their projects they need a technical sales rep for the uk um i've said that you should you should do it they want to interview you get a cv over today and i was like oh, okay so i in by the by the time the next week i'd got a full-time um job doing technical sales for motorsport and then a fairly intense weekend job um on a team wow. um, so yes though so there was this kind of year where it felt very hopeless and other than kind of odd days kind of cleaning stuff for race teams and maybe following a rat man around holding a laptop I didn't feel like I was getting anywhere um, but actually then all of a sudden I'd got two absolutely brilliant jobs that paid really well and I learned lots from and it completely changed ground um, so I went from this lack of security to kind of being overbooked really. Yeah that's so interesting and it, it kind of makes me think of like a little bit of the situation that we're in now where there are similarities of that kind of peaking and troughing and certain industries having a tough time and then coming out the other side of it. And um, it at least gives us a bit of hope that once everything flattens out a bit, there will be opportunities popping up all over the place. Yeah. And it's just about kind of being open and keeping networks going and, mm. and just keeping the faith really. Um, and I, that's something I'm trying to draw on now because as I said, this is all very hard and some days feel, feels really tougher than ever, but actually mm. you kind of go sometimes whether it's fate or luck or however you want to look at it, you know, those things do happen. Um, mm. and yeah, I, in the space of a week, I went from feeling like it was all a little bit pointless and I was going to be stuck here forever to being like, Yes, I am on a plane constantly and it is all dandy. Yeah, that's it. And I, I, I so often find that it's when you're at your absolute lowest and you feel like things can't get any worse, that suddenly the tide will change. It's almost like you, you have to get to that point in order to let all the opportunities just flow in. Um, so, yeah, that's, that's so interesting that that was how you started your career as well. Like, that's an incredible testament of your resilience early doors 
I remember um, my dad coming home during this kind of HMV period um, and saying like, well, well, why haven't you got a job yet? And I, I remember saying, I've like applied for 10 jobs today and him going, just a glorified pyjama tester at the moment. And, and, and thinking, oh, I don't know. Whether, yeah, I don't know whether he was going for tough love or whether it was the reality of our parents' generation. You got a job for life. And actually, millennials, I am a very proud millennial. Um, you know, we have a different attitude to it. We, we are used to more of a quick changing tide and maybe we're more adaptable and we follow our instincts more um and i think that was a a maybe a harsh start but i think mm. actually it maybe serves me quite well now yeah i bet it does it sounds like our dads would really get on i had a brilliant conversation with mine about exactly that about job security and jobs for life and how his generation didn't necessarily have it easier but in in their particularly in, in industry, whatever that looks like, whether it's motorsport or my dad was in construction, you know, he started as an apprentice at 16 and was with the same company for 30 years. It's like, you know, of course you feel like you expect a lot from your employer and you're willing to travel a really long way to get to work and all of these things. And that's just something that our generation can't relate to because permanent contracts, never mind like long-term jobs for life are really hard to come by. So, yeah, and, of course, we have more conditions. And, and we have student loans. And, like, I, I do some associate lecturing now, and I, my heart really goes to some of our students now because I graduated with kind of 30 grand's worth of debt, and I thought that was really hard because my parents had none. Um, but now I see them, they're getting 50 grand, 60 grand before they've even done their master's. And I think... You go job insecurity, big student loans, lack of pensions, expensive housing market. And yeah, you do go, it is, you just have to have a different attitude. Mm, mm -hmm. You have to be a bit, a bit grittier. And as you say, a lot of it comes down to creative problem solving. I feel like we are doing that just as a default, like constantly just having to rise to challenges and find innovative kind of agile solutions to things. Um, so, okay, so you had your first two jobs, your week job and your weekend job. At what point did you start kind of traveling around with your team? Did that start immediately? Pretty much immediately. Um, so I had done a bit of traveling um, for these kind of odd freelance gigs when I was at um, uni and I spent a little bit of time in America as part of my master's course, which hands down still is one of the best kind of periods of my life we went to America kind of I think it was about 12 of us um in hindsight we paid 300 pounds for the flights which seemed like a huge amount of money um but we got to kind of go on this tour of the states we did a big kind of engineering competition we got to travel around for a little bit and it just wow. that's where the bug really hit um and then I started when I started the, the two jobs I basically started traveling straight away I the first weekend so I got offered the team job on the, the kind of Tuesday. I went up on the Friday to Cheshire to a circuit called Alton Park. It's lovely. I'm sure dads collectively love it. Um, mm. And um, had a great, I did cry in the car park on the Saturday because it was too hard, but it was just nerves. And by the time we got to Sunday, um, the team owner 
she was the Monday because it was Easter weekend. Um, on the Monday night, the guy said, oh, we really want you to join the team permanently. Have you got your passport? And I remember thinking, I have come to Cheshire. I don't need my passport to get the M6. Like, <laughs> where are we going with this conversation? And he went, we're going to France now. Um, <laughs> can you go and get it? And I was like, but I have to go to, I was on my notice period for my uh, my kind of solar panel job i was like oh, i've got to go to work um and actually i phoned my boss and he said no you, you can't go to france tomorrow but look stuff's happening for you they were really flexible with my notice period um so i then the sales job um was this company had a uk subsidiary but were based in switzerland so i think week two they sent me to Switzerland um, and it was pretty much constant from then on in so the the peak of my travel so there was a year where I sort of transitioned I ended up going full-time with the race team as they expanded after a couple of years um, but the peak year which was my kind of crossover year between both jobs and then full-time I did 85 flights in a year wow I retrospectively have huge climate guilt around that because <laughs> I, uh, I just didn't think about it. We weren't, as a society, we just did, didn't talk about it as much. Um, so I have given up meat as kind of my penance for that year alone because, um, yeah, it was just pretty constant. The team I worked for um, were kind of notorious for being quite worldwide. We were very small um uk team um but what we used to do is we'd do the european season but then we would also ship all our cars out so we would then do asia middle east australia kind of during the european winter when yeah. racing shuts down here we would go and race other places and then ship back so we were kind of always notorious for having quite a heavy schedule i loved it like but after think four or five years of that the novelty kind of wears off a little bit um so it yeah then by the time you've been to the same holiday in in china like four times in a row the novelty is less cool um so yeah it it i have seen bits of the world that i loved and i didn't know i would love i've seen bits of the world that i thought I'd love my hated I've seen bits of the world that I didn't honestly know was were on the map before they told us we were going there um, and I did that all on somebody else's ticket and that is something that I am eternally grateful as hard as that's been sometimes you become the friend that misses the weddings and the birthday parties and the christenings and that was one of the reasons um, I ended up giving up the team job um eventually was because i became that friend you get the text message that would say oh i was going to invite you to this thing but i know you're not going to be there and mm. actually you know the, there's only so much of that that you kind of in the long term can take and some people are totally cool with that and all of their friends are in the circus with them and that's fine um but i knew that this maybe wasn't for life for me so Mm. there was opportunities to kind of do other jobs um yeah that's a really a really difficult thing to sustain and I think that emotional toll of constantly traveling is is extreme because it looks so glamorous 
Um, and I'm sure it was at times, you know, but at the same time, yeah, when you say yes to one thing, you're automatically saying no to something else. Yeah. Um, and, and it, yeah, you're right. It, it looks super, super glamorous. And some of it was, you know, some of our drivers were bona fide billionaires who had these amazing life stories and you got to sit at dinner with them and think, I just can't believe that I'm 23 and I'm sat here having dinner with somebody like you and you're, you're my friend, you know, they, they really looked out for you. Um, and they were amazing things. Um, but then also that is also counteracted by like this race in China we used to do every year that the, the, it did, it was a city race. So it's called the Macau Grand Prix. It's like the Vegas of China. Um, and they do like a Monaco Grand Prix kind of thing in there. So there's no permanent facilities. So basically you spend 10 days in an underground multi-story car park with no natural wow. light. And like, I thought it was those things before I went, I thought everybody was having me on about how awful it was. I thought they didn't want a girl to go on the trip. Um, uh. Cause I was the only girl on the, on, on the kind of technical side of the team. And I thought, oh yeah, like this place has got a bit of a reputation um, for kind of being party central. They don't want a small dorky girl to like cramp their style whilst they're out there. <laughs> so I thought they were building it up. And then in reality I got there and yeah, wow. It's, it's the most, like your skin is just like constantly, it's like being a mind. Oh. <laughs> but wow. you're in like kind of good humidity and you're like, oh no you didn't like this is just the least glamorous place i've ever been um so yeah it does and now i think it has made me a lot more probably i don't take people's jobs at face value so much now because now in small business you meet people all the time and you think oh your job must be so amazing and then you actually think yeah but there's still going to be bits of it I'm sure if you work in fashion or film or whatever there's still bits that nobody sees that are just um, unloading boxes in the rain of course well I mean I suppose the closest thing I can relate to this is is theatre is working in theatre it's like you you know people pay lots of money to come and see these amazing actors doing their thing on stage but you don't see the schlepping of boxes and the load-ins and the load-outs and the tears and you know the late nights and the it's um it's it's crazy but of course if you love it then you would do it all ten thousand times over you know and not question it yeah and it's been amazing actually my kind of best friend from um sick form is still my best friend today and we often joke that we have nothing and everything in common he works in theater um mm. and i work in motorsport and we go on paper nothing is similar about those what what how do we have so much to talk about and then we go no it is that doing what you love and being up a ladder on a sunday night when everybody else has gone home and and yeah. you know he's he's loading we have lots of flight cases in common <laughs> we go yes. Oh, yes you know about flight cases me too um and and yeah you just do it because you love it and yeah I yeah. am actually almost fascinated by more behind the scenes people and jobs now because I know they do it because they love it, not because of the glory of it. Yeah. And no one sees those risk assessments, you know, that must be risk. something you've got in common. Oh, a risk, <laughs> risk assessment. assessments. I love a crisis, forms. Oh. crisis communication plan. One of my favorites. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. That's a great one. I love that. 
<laughs> and okay, so when you were moving around and doing all of your jet setting, were there any things that you did to kind of keep your head on straight? Like presumably if you were going over different, you know, time schedules and all kinds of things, you must have just felt like you were about to explode sometimes. Absolutely. How did you ground yourself in your new places? Yeah, so I have a particular habit that I cannot even shake now um, that my partner laughs hysterically at. But also I think he laughs because he's nervous that it's weird. So um, because we were on such a time schedule all the time when we were away, um, I used to get to the hotel, unpack everything. And then every day before we went to bed, well, we'd come back from the circuit. It could be, if we're lucky, we'd get back at maybe eight. Bad times, sometimes we wouldn't come back at all. But we'd get back to the hotel. We weren't allowed to drink in our team kit in the bar. Um, some, it depends. Some teams let you do it, some teams don't. Um, so go back, everybody, quick change, get back in the bar. But in that quick change period, I would get all of my stuff out for the next morning. And I laid it out in the most meticulous way because I knew if we hadn't got back till 10, then we were going to go for a drink. I might not get to bed till like maybe one because not, I am the most morning person as well. So this was always quite a challenge for me. Um, but because you'd have such a hyper adrenalized day, it did take you a few hours to kind of calm down. So you'd mm -hmm. either sit in your room and watch foreign telly, which I, to this day, love watching foreign adverts. Um, <laughs> but you would want to go and do that wind down. So I knew that if we got to bed at one and maybe I was having to be up at half five to be at the circuit for half six, I was like, I want the extra microseconds in bed in the morning so I would lay all my team kit out I'd lay my hairbrush out I'd lay my hair clips out anything that I needed would be like in almost like this production line so in the wow. morning I could get up as late as possible um, and I still do this today like at the moment we're in lockdown it's not a particularly time-bound thing but I still get my clothes out for the next day <laughs> and I just I have to it's just such a habit that I think don't want to be making decisions in the morning about that so I do it the night before and it's so weird Absolutely. um and then so half kind of halfway through maybe not halfway maybe a third of the way through my time with this team um I got a roommate which is very exciting <gasps> so um the girlfriend now wife um of one of our mechanics joined us to look after all of our hospitality and so we got to be roomies um and so we then ended up with weird like habits and things together um so hair wash day was like a big thing we'd get to the hotel and we would almost have to make like a hair washing schedule for the week to be like so i'm washing my hair on thursday and saturday so are you okay washing yours on friday and sunday because again <laughs> we can't be we can't be messing about with this because there's two girls one shower <laughs> you know we've got to wear this out and all the guys would always laugh at how often on the airport transfer or on the flight or in the car we would be discussing the hair washing schedule and they were like <laughs> we just don't have this problem and you're like well yeah exactly you don't mm. there's a lot to go on patriarchy is really screwing us over on the time here and particularly <laughs> when you're in a hotel with one of those um hair dryers that you have to just keep the button pressed down oh, you're like yeah. so yeah so between um me and hannah we then also had these like weird 
rituals about whose bag went where and who was washing their hair that time and and yeah it was just kind of again trying to give yourself a slight sense of normality and and yeah grounding even though you didn't know where you were really mm. that's it I suppose if you keep your routines as similar as possible it doesn't matter where you are in the world because a hotel room's a hotel room and you would be amazed how close particularly chain hotels follow each other you'd be like ah oh, good to know that holiday inns look the same in Slovakia as they do in France and in North America good good <laughs> you know mm. like it is it's amazing and and as well from a sort of you know drivers are a whole separate kind of kettle of of fish but part of keeping a routine and, and kind of doing our own catering and you know we had an itinerary that literally told you like what socks and belt you were wearing every day part of it was because if you make all of that routine stuff around it easier you can focus on the job better and you know it mm -hmm. is competitive it is a sport you do need to win to keep alive most of the time financially so yeah I didn't need to be thinking about all this stuff I needed to be solving problems with cars or trying to work out how you get a driver to do something not mm. worrying about when my next meal was going to be or what shoes I was going to wear yeah it's the Barack Obama theory isn't it that he only has two suits so he doesn't need to make the decision and keeps his decisions unnecessary decisions down to as few as possible so that he can at the time focus on running the US I've got a lot of time for him oh me too me too what a guy um and clearly Michelle Obama is one of my personal heroes in fact yesterday I think it was yesterday marked two years since I went to go and see her live in Stockholm it was absolutely awesome I went to the one at the O2 and yeah it was just she is just so cool she's the queen she's the queen um and okay so the relationships that you made then that's quite a unique set of relationships to have as you're traveling around like you say with Hannah as your roomie do those have those relationships endured now that you're not working full-time in motorsport so some of them do and some of them don't and actually it's really interesting to see um kind of the decompression um out of it so um we had another kind of friend in our team who left a little bit before for um a few of us left in a way a lot of businesses do something changes then a lot of people kind of go in the follow but there was somebody that actually left maybe a year before year or two before we did um and she left and we went to see her a few times in her new life and we thought she was really bitter about like how badly we were treated and all the rest of it and we were like whoa you know she's maybe she's regretting her decision or whatever we can't relate to this um and then as we all slowly left i think we all went through the same thing of almost mm -hmm. like a period of of reflection on maybe the the negative bits that you don't think about so much when you're doing it you just accept that that's how life is you know it's roughy tufty it's a meritocracy it's not a meritocracy you say it's a meritocracy to make yourself feel better about how hard you're working you know mm -hmm. i think you then you kind of come out into this out of the bubble and you maybe see these things a little bit clearly and and you do go oh my god what like 
I'm sure there was a lot of stuff that were very contrary to employment law that we had to do. And so you get a bit resentful. But then after that, you know, the people that you do stick with, you'll stick with for life. You know, we've got friends now who run all sorts of little businesses. Some of them are still in motorsport, some of them in a completely different stuff. And they are people that I know we will be having barbecues together when we're allowed out when we're like mm. 60 and all of our kids will grow up and they'll think it's really weird that there's all these pictures of like, you know, all their elderly parents wearing these really dorky matching outfits <laughs> you know, around the world. And they'll be like, yeah, yeah, you've told us this story. Um, mm. It's been really interesting. And something um, that I kind of only came to like quite recently. So um, there was a, um, quite a controversial statement made by um the head of the kind of global governing body for motorsport um earlier this year <coughs> about um i think it was in relation to kind of um employment rights and things and and this guy quite old school um said you know you should if you work in motorsport you should just be grateful that you do millions of people want to do it um and actually, um, a guy that was one of the um, Formula One press officers actually stuck his head really far above the parapet, which nobody in I can recall of ever doing this before. He actually did a blog post. He doesn't work in the sport anymore. And he did a blog post and said, <clears throat> actually, no, I will tell you the truth. You know, I got to the point where I was basically suicidal. You know, it, it was really hard. You know, we were worked to the bone. I, you know, I was on my own in a hotel room constantly. And actually, you know what? I, <laughs> it wasn't perfect all the time. You know what? Maybe we shouldn't be grateful for, for our position in the sport. Um, and it got picked up by um, one of the kind of mainstream um, industry press things. And I wrote, I found it and read it and went, wow, there's... I never felt that bad, but mm. in reflection, I also went through kind of a bereavement whilst I was on the team, but I was back racing within three weeks. Um, so I went through a lot and actually reading this and reading someone being brutally honest about it kind of made me cry instantaneously. And I shared it on LinkedIn and sort of put my own spin on it and said, actually, you know what, I get this. Mm. And one of the things that I, kind of said was that actually it's very fickle a lot of this you know there are some people in the industry who you think are those friends that you're going to be having the barbecues with and they're not you know mm. they are they are climbers they are addicted to the industry you know there's some very interesting characters and some of them are fun to be around and some of them actually are quite toxic and stepping away from them was one of the best things I ever did for myself and for my mental health in the long run and actually mm. I put that out there on LinkedIn and I didn't think too much of it I thought you might get a few kind of well sorry to hear that or like oh interesting or you know maybe even I was kind of persuaded for a few maybe kind of more old school people to go oh you know millennials moaning about stuff don't be so entitled what mm. I got was like 10,000 people liking it and sharing it. and the, the I couldn't keep up for like three days and just comments and comments and comments of people and the ones actually that were the most um kind of insightful for me 
were the amount of people that said the same thing that kind of just went actually it's the relationships you know there are people within that industry who will use you and abuse you and I don't Mm -hmm. miss them and that's one of the greatest things coming out is going I, I don't need to be around these people anymore I've got my friends and you know we're friends for life but equally, there are people that you're happy to now retrospectively be distanced from and you can kind of laugh about them a little bit more. And a lot of people kind of go, oh, there's such a brave post. And I'm like, no, the guy who started this originally, he was the brave one. I've just got along. And actually, it was really interesting. Some of the kind of more peripatetic teammates that we had because again it's very freelance people come in and come out you know there were ones that I never expected to have a commented on it or b kind of reach out and say actually I had a really hard time as well or I never knew you were sat in the hotel room thinking that I was probably three doors down also thinking god I just want to go home and maybe Mm -hmm. the upside of a few of us being bold about that is that maybe more people can start when the sport reopens, obviously, um, can start having those conversations and maybe making it a more tolerant and inclusive space. Because, mm. you know, I wonder what that would have looked like if while you were travelling around, you, you know, sat next to someone in the bar and said, Christ, this is hard. You know, like, I'm really struggling today. You yeah. Know, I, what that would have done. I think it, I think it would have been amazing. but. Um, you know it is a very white male privileged sport you you have to have a lot of money to be there and um you know not all men not all women you know it is stereotyped but it is it's very alpha you know it, it, you've got to be very self-motivated and very committed to do it um and it's competitive and it draws and those kind of people draw more people like that in um so it ends up being very very macho and very competitive um you know because even if we finished eight o'clock at night we're going to run the track five times because we're also marathon runners you know it (laughs) it is very like that i ran the marathon twice whilst i was there because yeah that's just what you do you have to be top dog um and i think that's i didn't do formula one and i think it's from my friends that have been in it and are still in it that's even more exacerbated um Mm. within there um but yeah I think it is I think it would make such a difference and it's actually one of the things that was maybe sadder about that post is I had a couple of younger people that I had worked with that I'd brought in from kind of uni interns and things who actually said I don't feel like I can comment on this publicly but I just want you to know that I that it's too macho I, I, I don't feel like I can do it um and actually it's been kind of yeah really sad to feel like you brought people into that kind of atmosphere of of it being quite lonely and quite insular um but actually it's been quite nice to be able to say actually we can have a relationship on on the outside like I'm still here for you um Mm. those that we will some of us will always stay together on the outside some people will stay on the inside all the time and then some people will maybe between the two a little bit more Mm, it's so interesting the way you talk about it being like in or out you know and they're not being a kind of middle ground I've tried to find a middle ground since I've left and since I've started my own business by 
kind of working in the supply chain more or whatever but but team life is quite different to anything else it does really feel like in or out because mm-hmm. when you're in because of the nature of the travel and the nature of the hours it is that is all you do um, and I think actually one of the things that we were discussing yesterday with um, lockdown kind of delaying the start of the 2020 racing seasons actually British touring cars which I never did but is a pretty big deal ITV feeds on it um, they are racing pretty much every weekend between August and I think they're racing every weekend bar one in August and they're doing kind of 16 rounds in kind of 20 weeks or something and you just go particularly for freelancers you know prepping cards in between traveling like that is all they're going to do they are there's not mm. going to be a chance for a day off it just doesn't work like that so you are in or you are out mm. and do you think you know talking about those um younger people that you're bringing in from universities saying you know i'm i'm struggling or you know i'm, I'm finding this hard do you think, you know, what will budge first? Do you think the industry will have to make changes in order to have the up and coming talent joining them? Um, or do you think it's up to the young people to come in and kind of change it from the inside? I think it will be a mixture of both. So I think um, end millennials and Gen, Gen Z, Gen Z mm-hmm. I think they are even more open than we are which I think is going to be amazing. Um, So I think they will force the issue more. I think as some millennials who are maybe more open start to become management and owners and things, maybe it softens slightly there. But I think one of the really big um, dangers to the industry that I don't feel like enough people are honest about is the competition from other fields of work. So motorsport has always sort of thrived on, well, people do it because they love it it's cool it's sexy you know every job is oversubscribed and that is still true at the moment however more people are living in urban centers they can't afford cars or it's not suitable or it's not compatible with their environmental beliefs so we've got urbanization we've got autonomous cars we've got car sharing we've got lift sharing we've got all that kind of stuff so i think 17 year olds are not going to be super stoked to get their driving licenses like we all were you know i grew up in middle england so exciting when people started going cars we had freedom we could go places actually if you're growing up now in london oxford wherever you're not going to rush to get a car because you can't park it anywhere you can't afford the petrol it just makes no sense you're going to uber you're going to lift or you're you know you're more into like healthy lifestyle so you're going to bike places so i don't think car ownership models of car ownership are going to change that then changes how people feel about car brands so you know you love what you love when you're 18 so i worked a lot with audi as a race brand so i obsessively buy audis and everybody laughs at it you know i will still be buying audis when i'm 60 because i had a wonderful brand experience with them in my early life and i think (laughs) actually when you take that out of the equation you know maybe people love fords because their first car was a fiesta you know we're not going to have that in the same way because people aren't going to own their own cars so where's the driver then to go into 
a sport and also there's just cool there's cool other cool stuff you can do you can go and work in tech you can go and work at startup you can go and work in esports you can go and do the america's cup in the uk now we've got a big team doing that you know there's there's just so many more kind of tech cool jobs that you can do that actually going to work for a formula one team might not be as cool as going to work for an esports team or working for an environmental startup i think that consciousness is shifting and i think there's a real danger that the sport could be too arrogant maybe sometimes to think Mm -hmm. that we're forever going to have this permanent stream of young enthusiastic people who will work for nothing you know i think the turnover of young people is already bigger than it used to be and because people are more entrepreneurial now they are more willing to go you know what i'll do this for a few years and then i'll go do a startup with my mate you know i think that's going to change and yeah we're more less willing to kind of accept the status quo so i think it will change from one way or the other yeah well let's hope so i mean i think that's one of the things that's most exciting about kind of the job market and the next generation is it's so agile and so it is to a certain extent the onus is on industries to recognize that and be connected with university programs and really be representing themselves early doors so that 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 brand experience i have the same thing with minis like i will drive minis for my whole life like that brand experience gets into kids when it's when when they're still young and learning and excited about things um and if the expectation is just that the grads are going to fly towards them then they're going to get left behind yeah yeah i i can i can see it now with i so i teach on the course that i did at oxford brooks now and yeah there there are still a big portion of them who are chasing the formula one dream um but actually there's a lot more of them that are open to other things um you know you can see them they're more enthusiastic about the business modules that i teach on than we ever were and i'd love to Mm. say it's because they have better teachers now (laughs) but you know i think they are more more open to to suggestion and that's actually quite nice to to see Mm. and what made you in the end take the leap from motorsport to starting course concierge i know it's not necessarily as clean cut as that but what made you launch your business yeah so i had a bit of a halfway house job in between um so i got a job um kind of in a a i guess a support uh a support part of the motorsport industry is probably the easiest way to explain it and i did that for four years so that meant i could still do kind of the industry stuff but i didn't need to do the travel um but the main reason was I so my team was based up in Leeds and I wanted to come back to Oxfordshire all those kind of invites that I had passed on were all down here really um and my friends that I had in Leeds were my friends from the team so if I wasn't on the team and they were I would have nobody to hang out with (laughs) um so it kind of made sense to Mm. to to come back down here um and yeah a job came up for a company in my hometown so it kind of made sense to do it I did that for four years um and yeah it was kind of like being in the decompression um zone um and then that kind of uh there was a bit of a change of circumstance there and actually that was the moment where I kind of went 
you know what? I want to be the master of my own destiny here. I've worked really, really hard for all of these people. And I just had that then confidence of being able to go, you know what? I've done this for other people for so long. Why did I never think that I could maybe do this myself? Maybe it's this, maybe that is the imposter syndrome of the seven-year-old again. Mm. Um, and finally just getting into my center and going, you know what, actually, let's, let's do this myself I can see a little bit of a gap in the market let's let's give it a try and somebody said to me quite blankly well if it doesn't work you can just get a job and it was one of those moments where we went oh yeah you're right you can worst case scenario is you just do what you're doing now (laughs) exactly and that's not that scary in the meantime um so yeah it worked out and when I started the business I thought I would do more motorsport stuff um, I thought that was where all my networks lie. You know, I thought I had a proposition that was quite um, good for them. And actually, it wasn't. <laughs> you know, actually now less than kind of 20% of what we do is is in motorsport and engineering. And I love those bits. But actually, it's been really interesting to bring that kind of insight and that way of working, because it can be quite different, um, mm-hmm. into other businesses. And actually, now we work with all sorts of people and actually I feel like sometimes I can add more value with my kind of weird experience pool to independent businesses in Oxfordshire than I can in motorsport where everybody's largely kind of already know somebody that knows somebody that can do that or they already use a version of that software or whatever um so actually Mm -hmm. it's been really nice to kind of bring that kind of continuous improvement stuff outside um Mm. and it's and it's nice and again i don't want to beat up on motorsport because it sounds like i've been super negative sometimes in this and there was brilliant bits as well but payment terms are awful you know (laughs) formula one teams will start negotiating at end of month plus 120 days it's usually that no yeah so and even if you can hammer them down to end of month plus 30 they're going to ignore it until you shout at them that's Um, that's enough to put companies out of business (laughs) it does it does um it really does um so because again a lot of these are privately backed organizations um there is a notorious formula one team owner who is not in the sport anymore i would like to point out who for a laugh used to run all of the bank accounts down towards five pounds and then he'd put like 20 million in and start again oh it's quite notorious for teams that are run by less upstanding members of the industry to fold every winter, come back with a slightly different team name, remove the decks and go on again. You know, there mm-hmm. is a lot of quite, there's some people I think who do it deliberately because they know they can get away with it. And there's some who just love it so much that they just want to keep alive. And I don't think they necessarily do it from a bad place. They probably get bad advice or they've seen somebody else do it before um Mm. so yeah there's a lot of that so actually I feel like my business is more sustainable it's more diverse it's more interesting but it is also financially safer because not all my eggs are in one basket I've got seven day payment terms that people largely respect um Mm. and people say thank you for stuff you know most again like there are people that are amazingly thankful and there are lovely people in the industry and I've worked for some of them. Um, but it can be quite transactional because it's so busy and it's so on the move and you just forget to say thank you because you're in a hurry. 
and actually to have a slightly slower pace of business where people will send you a thank you card at Christmas or whatever it's yeah. almost like a bit of a novelty for me because I didn't have that for the first 12 years of my business life yeah what an enormous shift that must have been and how do you think your time in motorsport has affected the way you run your business now um it's very lean like, very um, lean and has, has it made lean. you kinder like I kind of get the sense that if you come out of a business like that you would want to make customer service your number one priority <laughs> yeah yeah you know I am I am quite um I'm I spend probably more time than my accountant would like doing corporate social responsibility getting interns in like I know interns are notoriously inefficient like you have to babysit them um watched Killing Eve last night she said management is just watching people that are worse than you do the same job I have to say we laugh because it's true <laughs> you know but I feel like I have this I've got a real duty of care to to kind of young people who because I had some amazing bosses but I also had some shit ones frankly mm -hmm. um, and I don't want to be one of those so I am I am all every kind of stem csr thing i just yeah i will come and do it i should be doing paid work that day but i'm coming to do it because i want i want the people coming in now whether they're coming into motorsport or wider stem i want them to feel included and valued and like they want to be there because i kind of at the time didn't maybe appreciate that I wasn't always included you know I was an I built engines during my master's degree for a fairly big company and they they had a tech center but there was no women's toilets you know so I had to walk across site to use the HR <laughs> toilet and then they then moaned because I had dirty safety shoes on in there you know and you do just go these are micro like you know these are microaggressions or they're 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 just little instances of of lack of inclusion lack of diversity across the board and i brushed them off and thought they didn't make any difference to me but they did you know in the long term they did and i don't want people to have that experience i don't want them to wear an xxxxxl man shirt you know mm. <laughs> like mm. i did um so i am very it makes me maybe too soft on some of the stuff like that um but equally, it, it's on the positives. It, we're a very lean company. You know, we've gone into lockdown now, and the first thing everybody's gone is right. Everybody needs to review the cash flow. We actually can't knock that much off. You know, we have a beautiful office, but that's an expense we want to pay for. But other than that, we're pretty self-sufficient. We're pretty adaptable. We 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 are used to okay, guys. We're in China, and we have forgotten the goodie bags. Let's make it up you know we're quite good with that you get very good at improvising um we did quite well in a race once in the middle east where the car was definitely not going to finish but we had a break and we stuffed a bit of a red bull can in a quarter of a million pound car and got it to work again so we're quite we're quite adaptable if you need me to wow. fix with a red bull can we can do it a pair of my tights saved a race as well because it was it was in a dust storm and it was going in and clogging up the engine and it was like a proper challenge and a kind of moment where i was like wait a minute i've got some tights in my bag a pair of tights saved the day so i think like a lot of that kind of making something out of nothing thing um 
has really helped running a small business because you have to do that constantly in a small business. And I like that. You're rebranding at the moment, aren't you? Is your website having a, a once over? Because uh, those kinds of things should 100% be on your website. We are going for probably a complete name change and everything, which is quite, quite ex- terrifying, but quite exciting. Um, but yeah, I'm also, um, we are a few days away from finishing like a personal brand website because I'm doing quite a lot of speaking um, around this experience. Uh, so yeah. so yeah, I've been doing a lot of diversity and inclusion talks, um, which has been really nice. So I'm going to spin that out into its own thing. And yeah, I'm sure more of those. It's been really interesting actually, this year doing more paid speaking work because a lot of the time you go oh and it's only when somebody asks you a weird question or you go and look at a photo that you need to illustrate and you go oh my god I'd forgotten about when that happened that like we all your life is not exceptional to you it never Mm. is you know because that's your lived experience but when you then have to force yourself to look through other people's lenses at it you kind of go oh yeah no I have done some cool stuff and I think everybody's life is like that you don't have to have done some mad globetrotting job like I did you know everybody has these really cool little things that other people are impressed with and actually that's the best thing about kind of talking to you and doing these talks and kind of stuff is to actually kind of sometimes look back and go oh yeah I'm not I'm not bad at this stuff yeah and you know what I find talking to small business owners really interesting as well because I I find a lot of the time they've got some really interesting stories to tell. Um, like I would hire you in a heartbeat if you're the start of your website was, hi, I'm Ella and I once saved a motorsport race with a pair of tights. There you, you go. Know, that, that's it. That's, that's your opener. Yeah. Like, I think I'm, I'm sold. I think it is. And I think that's part of our kind of, our kind of rebrand is, is actually just being a little bit more playful with it. And just, you know, I think, once you've been in business for a few years you know you find your tribe a little bit more and I think it's not only me I think I've seen lots of other people do it where they've gone in and been quite formal and been quite corporate because you're kind of I've got to be professional and that's what people want and then when you've got that confidence in your own business you can go and actually I really like one of the main focuses of copy on my personal website that we're building at the moment is about how I really like leopard print and yellow trainers and I'm going to do my keynote in that because I think it makes me a better speaker and actually four years ago I would have never written that down I would have gone well I could probably wear a shirt but then I can just sneak the trainers in whereas now I'm unapologetically yellow leopard print for your speech and that is who you are and I think that's part of yeah a being in your mid-30s but b having just having experienced business a little bit more it gives you more confidence and i think i am also equally obsessed with listening to small business stories and talking and Mm. to to people because i think it's such a fascinating thing to do and i again with my teaching work and with my speaking i am just so into saying to people that i never thought i'd do this you know, even five years ago, I would have never gone, oh my God, small business life is really like, that. it's also terrible, but it's really fun. You should do it. And I think, yeah, if you're a naturally nosy person, which as an engineer, you're kind of paid to be nosy. I am now nosy about people as well. So yeah, it's a perfect, curious, curious mm. world for curious oh, people. 
I can't wait to see your new website. That's very exciting. So much leopard print. So much leopard print. <laughs> oh my God. Even in the brand, don't tell me. I don't want to. Know. I don't want any spoilers because I just want to see it and be bowled over when it first comes out. Um. So I want to ask you a final question. So the question that I ask all of my guests is, "What home is for you?" Um. And this might be fairly obvious now after the end of this call, but I. I guess, you know, having travelled all over the world, ended up in Leeds and then been drawn back to Oxfordshire, you know, do you, how important is travel to you now and how important is home? So when you sent me this question a few days ago, I, this was the one question I felt I really struggled with, the idea of where is home. And I thought that's such a simple question, but I don't actually think I know anymore. You know, I think... Oxfordshire is somewhere I gravitate towards. I have lots of history here. I am in love with Oxford as a city and I think I will go back to the city centre at some point in time. Um, I'd like to win the lottery first so I can have a beautiful house in Summertown, but mm-hmm. I think I've got to buy some tickets first. Um, but I, I, I do love Oxfordshire. But weirdly, so I... This is a... a a long answer but I think it's worth it because it's a good story so my partner um Martin business partner life partner so we met at a race in France in 2012 so um one of my friends was decompressing and had already left the team I was in the team and uh, my birthday's the end of May and we were at Silverstone um the team just had a absolute catastrophic weekend like one of those weekends where you just go it's rubbish, we're rubbish, and the, it's raining, and like just everything is rubbish. And my friend that had just left, um, <clears throat> he, he was our PR man, um, but he had left and he phoned me and he sang happy birthday down the phone to me because he's a gem. <clears throat> and he said, you sound really sad, Evie. Like, go and ask the boss if you can take the week after next off work because I'm going to Le Mans um, to race in France I'm just going with a load of mates, but I think you just need some time out. I was like, no, I don't know. And then the weekend continued to get worse. So on the Monday, we got back, unloaded the truck. I said, can I take next week off? Because, you know, I just need a bit of holiday time. So went on this weird busman's holiday with loads of kind of part-time, full-time ex-motorsport people. It was a real motley crew. I didn't know anybody except... um, this this one friend and on that trip I met Martin so my friend was supposed to come pick me up from the train station um I love him but he's not organized time bound or any good at direction so in hindsight he wasn't a great person to have come to pick me up but (laughs) he did fail to show up so I walked like an hour with my bag found where I thought they were staying because they'd sent a photo they sent a picture message of the campsite the night before and I kind of walked past this bit and I kind of thought well that looks a bit similar and they're talking English so I'll go and just I was so pissed off at walking at this point that I just went and went hi this is gonna sound really weird but are you um Jay's friends and they were like yeah are you Ella he went to pick you up like two hours ago where is he and we're like I don't know I don't know either <laughs> but so I grumpily put my bag down started setting up my tent and this guy came over and he was like oh, hi, um, I'm 
I'm Martin, you must be Jace Randella. And I was like, yes, yes. I was so angry. I was like, oh. And, and he went, oh, you don't sound um, like you're from, from Yorkshire, like Jay. And I went, no, no, I live up there. But um, actually, um, I was born in Suffolk, but I grew up in Oxfordshire. So I don't really know where home is. And he went, oh, where in Suffolk? Nobody outside of Suffolk has ever asked where in Suffolk. <laughs> and it turned out we were born in the same hospital and his older brother had piano lessons at my next door neighbor's house when I was little. Wow. Um, and uh, I thought he was chav for the first half week of the trip. Uh, and then by the time the race actually started, I was like, oh no, I think I like that chav boy. Oh no. <laughs> and actually uh, it turned out he wasn't that much of a chav. It was just camping clothes kind of holding him back. Um, sure. And we got together. We've now been together um, eight years but I think the concept of home is changed by the fact that we were both born in the same place you know mm. our families are all over the place now they're in Northamptonshire they're in Oxfordshire he lived in Staffordshire when we met and I lived in Leeds but I mm. think there is a collective kind of childhood thing where we are both from the same place and we're both from Suffolk so we sometimes joke about well, when we move back, when we move back and we have the Suffolk web company or whatever, whatever we think we're going to do for our next great idea then, you know, I think there's, there's a homeland and there's a, a motherland there that if I maybe was with somebody else, I wouldn't think about so much. I'd go, oh yeah, I moved away from there when I was 11. You know, that's mm. it. But, mm. but because we have that shared route, I think there's more of a identity there. So yeah. That's it's so a- lovely. It's like a shared, a shared home. Yeah, and we like to also joke that we're both from East Anglia, so our children will definitely have web feet. But, you know, it, it's, it is, maybe it, that is, maybe Suffolk is, is, will be home again one day. Mm. Oh, that's, that's such a gorgeous note to end on, that actually home has become, it's become Martin and it's sort of become Suffolk as a result of that. That's really yeah, lovely. We'll, we'll make our home somewhere and maybe that's, one of the gifts of having traveled so much is that you make your home wherever your people are. Mm. And on that bombshell, thank you, Ella Bangton, you gorgeous human. It's been thank so you. lovely to have you. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Is This Seat Taken with Ella Barrington. It was so wonderful to speak to Ella about her work in motorsport the routines and the kind of habits that she's picked up that have stayed with her for life as a result of that work and also doing a bit of a deep dive into some of the darker sides of of what it was like living that lifestyle and how it's affected her now running her own business and I'm really grateful to Ella for taking the time to speak to me if you enjoyed this podcast it would mean the world if you could like and rate and review um, it really makes a big difference for a new podcast if you would like to get hold of Ella I will leave her details and Instagram handle in the description box as well as mine you can get hold of me anytime at Amy Meadows events do share this podcast on all of your socials um, it's great to see the conversations continuing beyond the episodes see you on the next one